you so much. Desi and Mark, may we take advantage of that strength, especially as we confront a devil who is stalking us to motivate us to move according to fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this worship hour. Thank you for technology, those that are worshiping with us in different places. I'm praying that your spirit would move on all of us according to our roles. Right now, Lord, you've put me in the role of prompter and teacher, but I am to be prompted and taught myself. I'm praying, Lord, for those that have gathered here to worship, and I'm praying for those that are watching from somewhere else. And I'm asking, Lord, wherever this message goes, may it do what it's supposed to do. Show them that you're God and that I'm moving according to your word. So save me, Lord, from saying anything I shouldn't and empower me to say everything I should. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to clarify some things. Uh, Last week's sermon generated an awful lot of conversation. And I had those conversations throughout the week, some of them long, some of them short, but quite a few. I want to state again that last week's message was a message to encourage you to move according to the dictates of your own conscience as you understand how you're to relate to that which is Caesar's and that which is not, okay? Uh, I had at least feedback from two people that they thought my message was, if you wear a mask, you don't have faith. That is absolutely not my message. I have no idea why you're wearing a mask. I have no idea why you're not. You wear that mask. I keep them in my pocket. I keep them in my car. My message last week was, know where you stand with God and know where you stand with the government and move according to faith. So let this be the most noble congregation there is who respects all people across all spectrums with all kinds of conditions and all kinds of private elements to their life that nobody needs to know about or does know about. Live according to the dictates of your conscience. Otherwise, you're living as a weak conscience person. And this is a heavy burden to bear up underneath. So pray your way into the position you're in. Know yourself. I believe the church's job is to protect the vulnerable and challenge the strong. So my hope is, is that I do my part as a one of the uh, mouthpieces of this institution to encourage you to be prudent and wise and thoughtful. It is also my job to challenge you to let the Word of God separate down to the marrow so that if there is a root of fear that's feeding the natural impulses of the soul to self-preservation, that you say, Lord, take the sword of the Spirit and cut it. Put some promises in my head so I'm not afraid. God's people have always been known for great love and no fear. That's a hard place to get to. It's not casual. We live in an age of such casual Christianity that the sloganism is painful. It's a disease. And what we really need is a depth of person. I'll be talking about that again here today. It's absolutely imperative that we are the most broad-minded, noble-hearted, intelligent people. We don't have a fragile society here. 
We aren't plagued in the context of the modern media forum where nobody can say anything without being canceled out or pigeonholed. Stand up for what you believe in a respectful way. And don't be badgered into a position by anybody, whether it's the bully of modern media or the bully down the corner or the bully at work. I was bullied as a kid, chased home from school. I can remember those days I had my back against the chain link fence and I'm surrounded by all these kids. You know, I'm thankful to my mom. You know, I repeat stories, but I can remember once she told the neighbors, you can all fight him, you can all beat him up, but you have to do it one at a time. That's fair. But today, you better know who you are. You're going to be squeezed into the mold. And that's what Paul says in Romans not to be. Don't be conformed to this world. Now, my wife asked me this morning if this is part two of last week. Well, I didn't really plan on it being, but it will be. It is. You say, Pastor, who makes you such an expert about what's going on? I say, I'm no expert. I don't claim to be an expert about anything. The only thing I might be an expert on over anybody else is me. But I do know this, and we're going to see it in the message this morning, that as soon as fear takes over, I know something's wrong. And while I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, I know there's a problem. As I mentioned last week, the great disease we're battling right now, greater than even the coronavirus, is the spiritual sickness of a fearful heart. I was walking around the parking lot, as I often do here, thinking and praying. And I looked over and I saw something. It was the same thing I had seen the day before when I was with all the tradesmen that were forming up the new uh, driveway for the church school. They looked over at it too. It was the Bering Springs football team. And some guys said, I don't think they're social distancing. It was true, they weren't. It's okay with me if they choose not to. But then as I was walking around the parking lot here yesterday, thinking and praying, I looked over and saw them again. And I thought to myself, they come every day to do this. They're just playing football. But I'm playing for the game of life. And I need to be more committed to what I'm doing than they are to what they're doing. How important is your church? On Wednesday, I was gathering up some of the materials for that new driveway in front of our school. I got all done at the Home Depot. I'd loaded all of my 16, 16-foot boards in the back of my truck, and they were sticking out. I needed a red flag to go on the back of them. So I saw this young man walk out of Home Depot. He's parked right, right next to me, and I thought, I'll ask him if they have him. Do you have any red flags? Because you know you're responsible, friends, when you've got something sticking out the back of your vehicle. You need to put a red flag on it so people can see it. He said, yeah, we've got them. I'll get you one. I said, no, 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 no. Don't go get me one. I'll go get it myself. Just 
where are they? I didn't see them. No, no, I'm going to go get you one. I want to tell you, this young man named Willie was a huge help to me. And by the way, when it was all said and done, he was joined by a young man named Aaron. And it took me a whole lot longer to do what I was doing because after they got my flag, I needed some string and it was out of string and they had to go all over the store looking for it. Took a long time. Those guys were exceptional. And I hung around long enough to tell one of the managers, because these were both young men, very young men, what an excellent job they had done in customer service. If they had not had the challenge they had had, I wouldn't have had the encounter I had. Because as I'm walking across the parking lot, I did happen to have my mask on. I usually wait to put it on until I'm in the store. But as I'm walking across the parking lot, someone says to me, Pastor Kelly, is that you? That's what you have to do when you have a mask on. Yeah, it's me. Can I talk to you? So I walk over to his, it's like a Dodge Sprinter, one of these nice vans. He's a contractor in the area. He doesn't attend a church in Berrien Springs. And uh, he tried to watch his church last Sabbath, but he couldn't. He ended up watching ours, and he wanted to talk about the message. We stood there for a while talking, and then we turned to talking about the church school, and he said, I've got some ideas. He says, you know, there's some research that suggests that you can filter the air and knock down a lot of that coronavirus with a certain kind of filter. It's like, oh, yeah, send that to me. I want to have it. You know, I stood there for probably 15 or 20 minutes visiting with it, and then we stood there and prayed right out there under the canopy where you get your building materials at Home Depot, and then I left. When I left, I came back here. I had an appointment. The person having the appointment was a young man, a young father in our congregation. He was gracious enough to wait almost a whole hour to visit with me. And when, when we sat down, he had 20 slides, and he wanted to show me the slides. He wanted to, to encourage and challenge me about issues that are going on in our society. We go through all 20 slides, and he gets down to the last slide. And on the last slide, nicely done, professionally laid out, it says... This is a time for action. And I'm thinking to myself, that's where the line's drawn. For some people, it's a time for inaction. But for this man, young man, father, it's a time for action. And I'm saying to myself, amen, amen. And then I come to the prayer meeting. You know, all the while, my mind's working. Interesting encounters that I'm having. And, and the table with the hand sanitizer wasn't where it usually is. So I thought, well, I'm going to move it back and stick it right there. I want to be really easy to get hand sanitizer. I use this stuff, by the way. Good stuff. Use it a lot. And remember, if you're sick, stay home. Amen? Amen. Okay. And remember last week I quoted from the Berrien County website, health department, asymptomatic people very rarely spread the disease. So you have any symptoms, stay home. If you have any doubt, stay home because we're trying to be good stewards of public health. After I moved the table and I started walking by, I saw there's three of these, and this one had a weird label on it. What's that say? So I went to grab it. I picked it up. It's like, okay, Lord, I'm getting the message. I'm getting the message. Somebody took a label from the general conference, slapped it across the front of this hand sanitizer, and it says, he said go. Can you say amen, friends? What a great place to have a label that says, he said go. Right there, while I'm fighting coronavirus, he said go. Now, you need to ask yourself this morning, how important is your church? This may not be your church. I had a person from Texas call me. 
want to encourage me about the message. This man, though limited through what he can do, is making himself the leader, maybe of a one-man army, maybe of more, trying to take care of people in the city of Houston. It was a great encouragement to me. I appreciate him calling. But he understands the message. When Jesus finished everything up, he didn't say, now remember, it's going to be easy and it's going to be wonderful and you're going to have great joy all the time. He gets down to the very end after he's warned them that you're going to be an enemy just because you call me your buddy, because you call me your Lord, your friend. And I want you to know something. In spite of everything I've warned you about and everything you could be afraid of, I'm still telling you, keep it going. Move it along. Don't let it die because at the end of the day, this church is about the value of a soul and Jesus knows a little something about that. How important is your church? If you had somebody that was evaluating your life and they could look at your schedule and they could look at your pocketbook and they could listen to your words and watch your actions and discern your attitudes, where would you be on a spectrum that would convince the world that this church matters and what it's about ought to be attended to? If this church fell off the face of the planet and no longer existed, as many will, what in the world difference would it make? How important is your church? Let's just do a quick little summary. In the last segment, we looked at some of these. I'm not going to look at them all today. In Judges 7, Gideon has 32,000 men. Somebody tell me how many he lost in the first cleaving. 22,000. You got too many people. Tell the scared ones they can leave. Almost everybody was scared. Two-thirds admitted it, and they walked away. God said, you still got some scared ones in there, but I'm going to help you weed them out. If they grab water on the go because they believe it's going to be a good day once the battle starts, you keep them. It was only 300. If they kneel down because they'd like another minute stuck between them and potential death, send them home. Now, I do want to look this up. Take your Bibles and go over to the book of Deuteronomy. I want you to see something that many have not seen before. And I want you to understand it's very relevant to today, De Deuteronomy chapter 20. You all knew that if a man got married, he couldn't be called to go to war. At least most of you did. Some of you knew that if he planted a vineyard, he could stay home too. And some of you knew that if he built a house, he was supposed to be given a chance to live in it. But a lot of you didn't know this. You've read it, and you forgot it, and you might not have noticed it. Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, after you've given all those reasons why a person could stay home, then the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. God understood that fear was a disease, and it spread like the plague, and it could take an army down, because faith is the victory not the size of the army, and God's presence is the confidence, not confidence in yourself. God said and put it in place, and it was to be articulated throughout the ages of Israel's existence. Before you go to battle, tell the people that are afraid they don't have to come if they're afraid. And 20,000 of Gideon's men said, that's me, I'm going back home. If you're not ready to die, God doesn't force you to face death. It's a good God we serve. But fear has been an immobilizer of God's people all through the ages. Today is no different. And it's important that we could be honest with ourselves because being afraid is not the worst thing that could happen to you. 
acting like you're not afraid and lying to yourself is much worse. Everybody's been afraid. Everybody will face fear and face it repeatedly. The things that used to make me afraid don't typically make me as afraid. By God's grace, He's written many chapters of faith into my life and yours. But the truth of the matter is, we have to be honest and say, I'm scared. And if I'm scared, I ought to ask myself why. And then I ought to ask what I'm supposed to do in spite of being scared. Sometimes God says, look, we need to look at some things. Let's dig down to the foundation. Let's get some peace in your heart and mind. Other times, God may make you face something you didn't want to face, and you come out the other side not feeling the same way. But one thing God doesn't want is He doesn't want people going through life operating out of fear because the switch of fear, once it's thrown, will motivate people to do things they never thought they'd do. Just think Peter, last week's sermon. No, Jesus, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, it's going to be worse than you think. You'll not only deny me, it'll be three times. And Jesus didn't say the last time will be with curses and epitaphs. It's pretty serious. And now we go fast forward because some recognize in this whole COVID situation and the power plays that are in process here, some see a dry run for the kinds of motivational dynamics that will be in place when revelation comes to bear down on us. The mark of the beast is implemented through fear. And it won't be that hard. Most of us don't really want to face the time of trouble, but God wants us to have the promises of His Word, like the Sabbath school talked about, so that we have more confidence in His presence and less confidence in the issues of the future and less fear. God has us on a journey. Honesty is the starting point. If you're afraid, it might be that the church is just a little part of your life, and Christ is not the center. If Christ becomes the center, the church will certainly not be too far behind. I want to tell you how important your church was. Society has a goal. It's not orchestrated, I don't believe, at least not in mass. I'm not a conspiratist. I don't think any group of human beings can work together well enough to achieve the goals that are being achieved by what I'll call evil intent of the mastermind of Satan. But I will tell you this, standing in the way of Satan's goals have been two institutions, maybe three. The first institution in the way of the devil's goals has been the home. So he began dismantling that with licentiousness, wrong humor, pleasure, derision against fathers who were once esteemed in a society and were most children's heroes, now they're sports figures. Satan began dismantling the institution of the home to whereof today the fractures and the weakness of our society because of the absence of dads, usually not moms, has taken and brought us to a position where it appears that confidence is not part of character in many situations. The second institution to stand in the way of the devil to achieve his goals is the church. Now, the school is certainly a part of that, and I'm not here this morning to com comment as much on the dynamic of public schools. It wouldn't be that not praying in a public school would be the end of the world if people were praying everywhere else, but because the church and the home have come under attack, and because the church has turned into a commodity like a business to give the consumer, which was used to be the member, what he wants, 
It's awfully hard to hold anybody accountable, so churches start looking like cheap two-bit businesses unless they can become mega, and then they can hire all the people they need for the lack of commitment that's in the congregation. It's a serious and sober place where we're at. It used to be that people like Peter Marshall, Senate chaplain, could stand up and challenge And I'm not saying those challenges don't get given, but they need to be given in many more places, in the home, certainly in the pulpit, certainly in the church. And with the home and the church out of the way, you've lost that which puts a little stiffness in the spine and strengthens somebody to say, now just a second, wait a minute here, I'm not sure that's exactly right. But the value systems of the church were in the way. The value systems of the home were in the way. And so we can go from a society that holds people accountable to stay married to a society that says, you don't have to work at staying married. You can be let out. And if this morning you're the victim of a divorce or you've participated in a divorce, I'm not speaking to bring shame upon you. What I'm saying is, is that a society that forgets the value of a father and a mother in a home and doesn't hold a group of people accountable is playing games. It's experimenting with generational uh, empirical science. The problem is you can't ruin a generation and bring it back easily, but we're going to come to a place where the world's going to wake up and say, we got to get back to God. We got to get back to church. It's going to be a neoconservative, a neo or a new religious conservatism, and everybody's going to be afraid enough just You can bet your sweet bippy if you've never heard that phrase before. I don't know exactly where it came from. But you can be sure that somewhere down the road, the fear that's operative here is the devil being able to see the cards of society, and he knows it's not too long now until I can play the final hand, the straight flush of fear. It's going to work. Saul and all of his men were hiding in the caves in 1 Samuel 13, 6. David came up to a group of people that was standing around for 40 days listening to Goliath taunt the armies of the living God. Elijah gathered everybody on Mount Carmel and even after all day exhibitions that failed, his people got close to him but wouldn't speak up. And we think about David's mighty men, they're enshrined for their mighty acts of value. But this morning, I want to look at Nehemiah. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. I believe this chapter in the Bible might be the closest akin to anything my generations of life have faced. Nehemiah chapter 6, it's the plot to scare the leader. In this case, it's the plot to shut down the work of God. How important is your church? Nehemiah chapter 6. So find the book of Psalms and start backing up, and you'll be there in the book of Nehemiah. Now, when it was reported, verse 1, to Samballat, Tobiah, to Gershom the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Samballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to do me harm. So I sent a messenger to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent this message to me four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. Let's be friends. 
They're enemies of God. They've tried to ruin the work before. They see they're not stopping this man and his influence, so they're going to try to meet with him privately and patch it all up. But Nehemiah knows it's a trick. Nehemiah is up against the disfavor of all the surrounding nations. Let's go to verse 5. That's plot number one with four attempts. Then Sam Ballot sent his servant to me in the same manner of fit time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to their reports. You also have appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Do you understand what's going on? The last 11 years of the king of Israel, when the nation was surrounded, when Jerusalem was surrounded, you know, Nebuchadnezzar tried three times to get that nation to surrender. He came in 606 B.C. He came back later. The first was Daniel's leaving. The second was Ezekiel's leaving. And finally, he sets up Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebels for 11 years. And when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, he tears the city to pieces. Jerusalem was like, for, for, for someone who wanted a puppet king, Jerusalem was like the plague itself. Rebellion was woven into their hearts. So when these men come, this is after the 70 years, after Nebuchadnezzar, when these men come and they say, oh, you're using the old playbook, you're going to set yourself up as a king, they're trying to scare Nehemiah with the media. And the media is going to make its way back. And I don't know who this uh, Gashmu is. But he must have been a man of some credibility. Maybe he was the king's on-the-ground reporter. So you've got it all planned. You've got prophets to run before you. You've got people to proclaim you king. How does he respond? What if this word gets back? It's not like he can get on the phone and call Artaxerxes and say, hey, it's all a bunch of lies. Verse 8, then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Plot number two to scare him, and it doesn't work. Plot number three. Actually, let's read verse 9. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. And then here's a prayer. Every, every leader of anything needs to put this prayer in their mind and pray it day by day. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So let's go for the last plot. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, whom you need to know appears to be a prophet, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home. Interesting parallel to our current age. It has nothing to do with disease. It appears that he's confined at home because he's purporting himself to be a true prophet and associating with Nehemiah and his people is dangerous. So he's kind of hiding out. 
He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. For they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Now this man of God could say to himself, they're going to get me, they're going to get me. It's going to get me, it's going to get me. He could have said, there's only one place that's really secure in this town, and that's to get inside the temple complex, and that's to go inside the holy place, and that's to go inside the most holy place and shut all the doors and bar it down, and I'll be okay right there. And if it could get a little bit worse, the prophet who's now acting as a false prophet says, we're going to kill you, they're going to kill you at night. So never can you lay your head down on the pillow and rest because somebody's going to get you. But I said, should a man like me flee? I want everybody listening today this morning to ask themselves, what kind of man or woman do you want to be? Should a man like me flee? Should a woman like you flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? In other words, if God's destined me to die, it might as well be here in my bed or here in my home because if it's in the temple, that's where it's going to be. And as a matter of fact, wouldn't it be a tragic, a tragic story if he runs to the temple and they shut all the doors and it now turns into a prison chamber for execution because somebody's conspiring against him. You see, friends, the safest place to be is where God said for you to be at the time God said to be there. I will not go, verse 12. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Now, I want you to know something. Nehemiah knew that fear could not be allowed to motivate his decision-making. That's like me saying, I'm not an expert. As a matter of fact, all the data relative to how contagious this disease is and, and whether it's touching or singing or your eyes or your mouth or your nose, I'm no expert on that. I'm not going to purport myself to be an expert, but Nehemiah knows what you can know, and that is if you move according to fear, you're moving according to the wrong thing, and you're going to end up in the wrong place. But he also reveals in his storyline something important for you and me. I won't know the facts about this disease until a year or two down the road if things settle out for a little while. But when the dust settles, it will be for me to know what Nehemiah didn't know. He didn't know Shemaiah, who had been a friend and a true prophet, was acting as a false prophet until he made the right decision. God's not letting me off the hook, and he's not letting you off the hook. How important is your church? Does it relegate itself to the outer margins? Is it a great socializing place? Or is its message and is its mission central to who you are? Verse 13, he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act according to, accordingly and sin so that they might hear an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Think about it, friends. What was Nehemiah really giving everybody? How would Nehemiah have been defiled, and how would he have defiled everybody else? If they could have gotten Nehemiah to act afraid, 
What kind of plague of fear might have broken out in the ranks of the faithful and shut down the work? What role do you play in your home? What role do you play with your friends? What role do you play in this church and in society? Can you be made afraid? The only way to get unafraid is to get down on your knees and say, Lord, I'm afraid. That's what David did. What time I am afraid, I'm going to trust in you. The place I go when the fears all gather around me, those unseen spiritual beings that are looking to flatter, bribe, or terrify me, it's to my knees. It's the promises of God's presence. It's the assurance of his word. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If he would have run to the temple, he would have destroyed his ability to confidently lead the workforce which had taken their cues from him. If you go back to chapter 5, you find that he says that he didn't even take his portion from the governor to feed himself all the years he was there. You see, the problem with fear is that it is the elemental emotion tied to the most elemental self-interest. And Nehemiah was there to show them he wasn't to become a great man, to become a king. And he wasn't there to win over Sam Ballot and Tobiah. There are some people in your life you're never going to win over. Get over it. Sometimes the best statement about the, the nobility and purpose, purposefulness of your character are your enemies. Let it be. I was talking with a 40-year-old young man, father, in this congregation just on Thursday night, reminding him that it was about at his age that it came to me, probably way too late. But it came to me that I have to be who God's called me to be. It doesn't matter how much favor comes from other places. So how much does your church matter? What is the value of a soul? Is it okay if we go out of business? Is it okay if we go underground? There'll come a time when maybe we have to. But it won't be because we rolled out of the way so that the world's agenda of control through fear could direct everything. How important is your school? Take your Bible and turn over to 2 Kings 6. How important is it that our schools keep going. Well, I want to challenge every parent listening to me, 2 Kings chapter 6. It's absolutely imperative you understand this school's not a business. We make no money at it. We just pour money into it. Praise the Lord. And we need everybody that attends it to understand they become a covenant part of a community to support it. Not everyone is a member of this church, so the degree of support is somewhat different. But all should understand its fragility. 2 Kings 6, now the son of the prophet said to Elisha, behold, the place where we are living is too little for us. Let us go to the Jordan, take each of us from there a beam, and let us make a place for ourselves that we may live. So he said, go. But he did more than that. The one said, please be willing to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them, and they came to the Jordan, and they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, and he said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place, and he cut out a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he put it on his hand and took it. How important is the school? Well, the scriptures don't have lots of stories about schools, but we have this one. It's important enough to where the students themselves said, we want to be in a better situation. 
It was important enough that the prophet would affirm it from God. It was important enough that the prophet would go. It was important enough that the prophet would work, and it was important enough that God would work a miracle so the school would go. What kind of commitment do we have to ours? You know, this school, like many other private schools, runs on a bubble. There's no big endowment behind it keeping it going. It's endowed by your commitments. And when your commitments get when your commitments go down, the vitality of the school goes down. This church is fully committed to its school, and I praise the Lord for that. But I want to say something. That commitment probably is going to grow as time goes on. Where are we at? Tomorrow we have a work bee. I invite you to come. You can see in, in the bulletin, we have a financial goal. You look over the lay of the land and you recognize that Seventh-day Adventist Christian, Christian education is under duress. It's under siege. I was walking this parking lot this week and I, I heard the sound, the, the, the heavy working sound of a diesel engine, engine and I looked over. The cement truck was stuck in the sand. What they do? They came along with a bulldozer. They backed it up to the cement truck and the bulldozer moved the throttle and you could hear that big caterpillar engine bearing down and all of those treads digging in and that, that cement truck, you know, what's rolling in that barrel is the stuff they're going to form a strong foundation with. The cement truck is the school. The bulldozer is the church. The school gets stuck in the mires of modern society. It's lack of commitment. All of the different things that come to it. It needs a church to back up to it. Lay the blade on the frame of the cement truck. Step on the accelerator and move it out of the doldrums, the sandy pit in which it's stuck. That's you and me, friends. Are we going to do it? This is where we're at. I'm holding in my hands here a transcript from a report. August 14, NPR. Colleges that keep small, isolated towns vibrant now pose a public health threat. So it's quite a title. Makes it sound like if you've been isolated out in little Podunkville, you better be careful. And that is the point of their article. All those kids coming in from all over the place may upset the coronavirus apple cart, and you could get sick, so be careful. But you need to know how it starts, because we're in one of those towns. The Sterling College Warriors are scheduled to take on the McPherson College Bulldogs at home. If that familiar thud of shoe against football and cheer from the stands doesn't happen, the college that keeps the central Kansas town's economy humming, that gives it cultural viability, vitality, and that separates Sterling from the hallowing out that defines so many other small Midwestern towns might not survive. What are they saying? Those little college towns pump lots of money into those economies. So I guess all those kids that come back with their expensive tuition bills are also doing something for the city too, other than just bringing a boatload of coronavirus. The school, after 133 years, could die and doom the town that takes such pride in the football squad and embraces a student body like family. Skipping a paragraph. Hundreds of small colleges dotting the country rely on students paying tens of thousands of dollars a year in exchange for a distinctive, personal, high-touch college experience. Many of those colleges hung on year to year even before the pandemic. Now COVID-19 threatens to cut off the oxygen, sustaining these schools and the sports programs that drive enrollment. What's the point? Hundreds 
of little towns like Bering Springs could become the same ghost towns that all the other little Midwestern towns whose only real economy is antique stores and gas stations. How important is our school? What is our level of commitment? How hard are we willing to push to make sure it goes? Pastors, your schools deserve undaunting support, but schools, your schools, our schools, also need a unified accountability that makes sure they have a timely purpose for the age in which we're living in. We're not just to be a one knockoff from the public school with a tag on. Our curriculum should get more focused. Do you understand? The Spirit of Prophecy tells us someday our kids are going to be preaching the message because their preachers and their parents may be out of commission. What is the focus of our school? Is it time for us to adjust those curriculums in such a way that the school represents in its intentionality what society seems to be saying about signs of the end? I got to thinking about it. Every school I've graduated from is out of business, with the exception of Andrews University. Our colleges are not immune from this. How important are they? What do you owe the schools you graduated from? Was it just you paid them money and you got what you paid for? No, you didn't. You paid a fraction. The church paid some. The conference paid some. And you paid some. We're going to have to totally abandon this idea that the school gave me a service for a price. No, the school gave you a sacrifice of service for a price. And that commitment to that school is about, the, is about the institutionalization and the intentionalization of indoctrinating our kids. And by the way, if you don't think our kids are being indoctrinated, you should have heard the report I heard on NPR about the summer camp in New Hampshire that's set up especially for transgender kids. Now, my compassion to every child who's struggling with transgenderism God's compassion. But NPR went out of its way to give a very large segment of time. And in the scope of it all, they interviewed a 36-year-old therapist who basically said trying to control the thoughts of an elementary or middle-aged kid is repression. Really? Maybe in this morass, Maybe in this abyss of sexual addiction and confusion, maybe there's more need than ever for a loving, principled Christian to stand before a child. Their home may have fallen apart. They may have no one to go to. Maybe now more than ever, we need to point the way forward that says it's love that makes you happy, not sex. And maybe we need to point our way forward to the idea that identity is found in Christ even if there is a denial of certain feelings and thoughts that have the power to drag me down and ruin me. Maybe we're in a moment in time that our schools are needed more now than ever. And maybe it's time for us to jettison some of the things in our life that would free up the resources to keep our schools going strong. This church has been committed and resilient. And for those that are able to come tomorrow to help strengthen it, may God be with you. But I want to tell you something. The efforts of this church to put the very best foot forward 
in leadership and curriculum and facility, in culture and community. It's important. How important is your life? Are you supposed to just bounce through life like a pinball, going from one pleasurable experience to another, motivated by feeling? Have you forgotten, friends, that you're a pilgrim, not a homesteader? That you're not going to a party, but you're going home? That life is a battle and a march? Have you forgotten there's joy in service? How many meaningless hours have been spent in social media? Use it for the kingdom or don't use it at all. Strengthen your family with it or let it go. But don't waste hours sitting in front of a screen finding data, some of it silly and inefficient and ineffective for building anything up. It's just kind of a a way of looking in on somebody else's life. Of course it's interesting to a degree, but friends, it's time for us to sharpen our pencil and shape our calendar so that we have time It's time to be at the prayer meeting. It's time to realize that your experience affects my experience and my experience affects yours. Is it really time for us to sit around and watch modern day gladiators slamming into each other, kicking pigskin through through uprights or bouncing it through hoops or or watching it go into goals? Maybe it's time for us to let go of some of that and invest our best talents in fighting back against a culture that's looking to snuff the life out. This is how it's working. You think you're going to get your kids casually? Get this mental word picture in your mind. Our culture right now is like a big anaconda. And it's wrapped itself around our homes and our churches and every institution that stands for God. And every time you breathe out, it tightens down. And eventually, it's over. If we're going to turn back the battle at the gates, we're going to need some people to show up at the gates to turn it back. Quit looking for a false margin so you can rest. There's rest for God, from God, and there's a day for rest, but there is no outside rest that can give you the inner rest. I know people that are tireless workers, and they're more at rest in their spirit than people who don't do anything extra for anybody else, but they hang out, and they sit there on their phones... And they never come away rested in spirit or even body or mind. I know people that are overworking for a false security. They're trying to outrace the devouring demands, the ravenous demands of security. Get more, save more, have more stuff. But you know what? It doesn't work that way. When I think about the Apostle Paul, my last scripture, go to 2 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul, I asked myself early in the week, did Paul ever take a vacation? And I thought to myself, he never had an employer. How could he take a vacation? My conclusion was that all those long walks between cities and those long rides on the boat afforded him a chance to be out from underneath some of the pressures of life. When we look at the life of Paul, we come to this situation where we realize probably nobody but Jesus. Verse 22, are they a Hebrew? So am I. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? So am I. Are they an Israelite? So am I. Are they a descendant of Abraham? So am I. 
Are they servants of Christ? So am I. Why is he having to do this? Because he's competing for influence on the church. He's got to make a point. Please stop listening to those people and start listening to me. I spiritually birthed you in the spirit. I speak like I'm insane. Verse 24, five times. Well, no, let's not skip 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger and death. Most of us would bail out right there. You're only going to beat me up and throw me in jail so many times. You're only going to overwork me so many times. You're only going to threaten my life so many times, and I've not signed up for this. Five times I received the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these external things, there's the fact that I worry that my work will end up being a big zero. The daily pressures of the churches. There's three reasons you need to think about this. The cradle, the cross, and the cloud. Jesus is coming back. People aren't falling out of the world into heaven. They need no knowledge. Jesus came to this world unrecognized, though he'd been lauded by all the angels. He was poor, and he lived under pressure because of the poverty for 30 years. His father died somewhere along the way, and his brothers didn't appreciate him. His mother even misunderstood him, but he came anyway. It was a warrant for death. It took him all the way up to the cross where Jesus was abandoned because of fear by all of his best friends. And if that wasn't enough, the night before, he would have fallen prostrate into the arms of death simply because the weight of the world, the sins, was crushing out his life. We don't get it. We don't understand it. It's beyond us. And then they pinned him to a tree, robbed him of his dignity, mocked and scorned him, and nobody except a thief on a cross would say, Lord, in that moment. Jesus left it all. He lost it all so that we could live again. Never was it convenient. Rarely was it fun. Oft it was hard. And many nights he was cold and sleepless pleading for you and me. Jesus left and the one thing he said after warning all of us that it wouldn't be easy is he said, go, go. Put it on and go. It won't be long now. Christ, eastern sky, that's that way. A cloud half the size of a man's hand is going to appear. It's going to get darker in the middle as it gets brighter around the edges. It's going to be the darkest hour of earth's history, which means it's going to be a moment of tremendous crisis, and we'll be waiting for our deliverance. 
Unfortunately, if people haven't been warned that some of what they're doing is warring against their eternal inheritance, they're going to lose it. Unfortunately, there's hurting people that need to be loved, hungry people who need to be fed, people that need to be educated, a whole new workforce and a whole new generation that needs to be raised up. Unfortunately, the excesses of the last 50 years and the question authority dynamic of our society has rendered us as pleasure seekers and the church as dying on the vine. But Christ says, go because I'm coming. Christ says the value of a soul can be seen in the scars of my hands. Christ says you are to be about your father's business. Christ says it's all hanging on you. Fortunately, the Spirit tells us in the Word and in the Spirit of prophecy that at some moment in time, Christ is going to come down and take the reins into his own hands. Praise God. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want anybody else left behind. I can't work on fear. It'd be a lot easier for me not to challenge you and you not to challenge anybody else. But here's the fact. If the church goes out of business, so does hope, so does love, so does freedom, so does liberty. If the school goes out of business, we can still educate at home in some measure. And certainly for all of you that have been educated at home, give it your very best and make it a quality experience. But the truth is, is that these institutions focus us, challenge us, strengthen us. This church cannot go out of business. This school cannot go out of business. Our lives are dedicated to the cross and the exaltation of a Savior who would die on it. And this morning, this afternoon now it is, I'm calling you to ask yourself, what evidence is there? Objective evidence, not just wishes and wants. What evidence is there that it all matters the most to me? Not in contrast to my family, but with my family. I've grown weary of people who, who make sure that the lines are so drawn that they do nothing because no time's left over. I believe in boundaries, but why don't you draw a bigger circle and bring your family with you in ministry? This is where we're supposed to be. God's going to turn back the battle at the gate. We might be closer to the gate than we realize. The press of the world's on us. No fear. It's in, back, it, it's in the back glass of pickup trucks with guns slung across it. It's false bravado. It's the words of Peter. This morning, this afternoon, I'm calling you to a new look at your life and a new look at the church, which is the apple of God's eye. It's the object of his supreme regard in spite of all of its defects. There are lots of people listening to me right now who have sacrificed through their years and they have little strength left. Thank you, praise God. There are many listening to me right now that are sacrificing regularly and constantly for the work of God, but there are some listening to me for whom church is an add-on to their life and the mission of this movement doesn't matter that much. And God's calling me to call all of you to say it's not a cultural experience, although there's culture that comes with it. It's a call. It's a call to a new commitment in Christ. And this morning, I'm calling you. I'm calling you to commit to examine your lives carefully with God somewhere in the next 24 hours. Some of you know right now you need to make a different decision. We're about to sing a song that says, stand up, stand up for Jesus. While you're standing, I'm calling you to think about what it is that motivates your life. Can people go to hell in a handbag and it's okay with us? Can they live in ignorance and darkness and never know there's a God you could love? For all the sacrifice that's in this room, I praise God. 
I don't want to discourage anybody. But for that which will reinstitute vigor and life, vibrancy and strength and make the world afraid of the influence of the church again, I'm calling for Christ. So while we sing, you make your covenant with God. You know in your heart what needs to change. You give it to him. It's not for me to know. Just like I can't know if you're afraid. It's not for me to say. But God's waiting to hear and he knows. And he says, child, take my hand. Don't be afraid. Make this church great again through the power of the Spirit in your life and the collective unity of the church as a whole. It's a great church. I love this village church. May we go on with Christ unafraid. Let's stand and we're going to sing. And while we sing, let us think and commit. Stand up, stand up for Jesus.